Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mind Body Green's beauty podcast, Clean Beauty School. I am your host and Mind Body Green's beauty director, Alexandra Ingler. On this podcast, we explore beauty through the lens of well-being. And on today's episode, we are going to be discussing elements of aging that we typically don't discuss in the beauty space. So I am so excited to get into this because I think all of the ways that our bodies age are equally important to discuss and are equally fascinating. So I really think today's discussion is going to be very educational for all of us, myself included. And to do so, I am having on a clinical dermatologist who has literally written a textbook about some of these skincare conditions that we're going to be talking about today. So I am so excited to have him on. Dr. Anar Mikhailov, welcome. Thank you, Alex. I'm excited to be here on your podcast. I've listened to a few already and you're doing a great job educating uh, your community. So I'm glad to hopefully share some additional clinical and fun, informative discussion points about the skin and medicine in general. Well, I am very excited to have you. I know we're going to be getting into a lot of the nitty gritty later on, but I always like to allow the audience to get to know you a little bit better before we get into all of that. So what was your journey into medicine and more specifically dermatology? Yes, Alex, that is and was to some extent a long journey that still continues. Everyone has a a, a unique approach and a a unique steps to, to get to where they are. Most of my journey has been shaped by incredible mentors. And to this day, I'm thankful for all of them. I actually grew up abroad. I grew up, I was born and raised in Kiev, Ukraine and lived in the U.S. since the age of nine. I never had anyone in medicine in my family, but early on, I was really had a formative experience with a cardiologist actually during high school who really changed my view of public health. He was really big into public health and having an impact on a community that's just beyond, but uh, much greater than the people you touch every day. And he really focused on thinking more broadly. And I happened to have this great connection during a summer internship that blossomed into my pursuit of medical school. And from there, again, another great mentor in the public health field. She was a dermatologist, Dr. Kaberic at University of Pennsylvania, who pushed me to think about dermatology as the channel, the conduit to reach a a great population, a a significant population. And so at that time, I, I was doing a lot of work with both telemedicine, international medicine, international dermatology, and ultimately found my way to an amazing place in Boston. I trained at the Massachusetts General Hospital with amazing folks. The, the individuals around me there were some of the biggest names in medicine and dermatology. Individuals, for example, Dr. Rox Anderson, who actually invented the laser for skin wow. for all the various cosmetic and non-cosmetic uses in skin, as well as some of the early pioneers of medicines to treat melanomas, cancers, and leukemias. And so I was surrounded by a lot of very science-oriented, basic science-oriented medical dermatologists. And ultimately, that shaped who I am today. And nowadays, I practice primarily medical dermatology, which is, for me, both in the clinic and in the hospital. So I'm quite involved in the community that is in the hospital community, patients who are admitted, who need help and they're hospitalized. So some of the worst dermatologic emergencies and urgencies that you can think of. And at the same time, I do see quite a large population in the outpatient clinic. I try to help on an international level as well. So I'm 
involved in a few international organizations where I can do some both teaching remotely and internationally and have been to some conferences abroad. And I love teaching in general, so I still continue my teaching endeavors. And I work a lot with internal medicine residents, dermatology residents here. I'm currently based out of Rochester, New York, but in the last 12 years, I was practicing and working out of Boston. So yeah, so that's a journey in a bit of a nutshell. Of course, there's it's a lot quite the more resume. to it. Yes, 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 yes. It's a long journey. It continues. And, and I wanted to say that go, going back to mentors, I think one of the, I've so many great quotes and memories that I've had. And most recently, one of my most beloved mentors, he passed away at the age of 102. Wow. And I've had people ask me, when I plan to retire. And, and I really think think back to Dr. Sam Michella, who, while I was practicing at the Leahy Clinic and he was 95 years old, he would still come into clinic once in a while and, and see patients with me. And that's the type of career I, I look forward to. This is uh, part of medicine that I love to not only practice, but uh, to give back and teach. And, and, and so that's where I find myself today. Well, Certainly, we are all for longevity in all aspects of our life, but especially longevity and your career and what you're passionate about. And you can tell just by hearing you talk about this that you are deeply passionate about your work. And to go off of that, I'm always interested in people's guiding philosophies, their North Stars that they look to that inform their work. And I'm curious, what is your health philosophy? Okay. Yeah. So that's a good question, by the way. There's multiple facets and ways you can answer that. But I'm someone who, there, there's a quote from Shakespeare and, I, and I've uh, referenced this before, and I tell my patients this sometimes as well, is self-love, my liege, is not so vile a sin as self-neglect. And so, you know, what Shakespeare means by that is essentially taking care of yourself in, in many ways and w- whatever ways that is, is so important, right? Because, and, and it's the antithesis of self-neglect. I think a lot of Busy professionals, very high-performing professionals can, and me included at different points in my career, can become involved in your, whatever work you're doing, whatever you're doing, to such an extent that we may forget that we have to concentrate on ourselves just as much, if not more. And so when I ha- when I hear patients sometimes feel bad about asking advice, for example, about wrinkles or pigmentation disorders, or they're not happy with how something looks on their arm, their face or a scar. I remind them that's okay. We are allowed to be worried. And I encourage folks, not necessarily worried, but to care, to care about ourselves, about how we look and how we feel. And fundamentally, that's very important. And I think as a broader society, we're beginning to appreciate both the mental component of that and the physical components of what it means to to care for ourselves. So yeah, so I I find that to be, I, I try to emphasize that to my patients. And of course, I have some sort of habits myself that I try to practice. I was going to ask you a follow-up question about what your beauty philosophy was, but your health philosophy really has a lot of beauty elements in it. So I'm curious if there's overlap there with your beauty and health philosophy or if you have an entirely different one. Yeah, it's not necessarily different. It, It depends on what what I'm asked. For example, oftentimes patients will look for advice on specific beauty treatments or how can I maintain a youthful appearance. And sometimes rarely I'll have folks who show me pictures of what they would prefer to look like and so forth. And I try to hone the individual's desires a little bit, try to tease out exactly what the goals are. And so, you know, what is beauty? And I think I try to to a focus on who you are and who they are, not to look like anyone else, not to be anyone else, but to optimize your body, your skin, your mental health, 
And so a lot of my beauty philosophy is about finding what the ideal outcome someone is looking for, not who they want to be or who, who else they want to look like. And so, you know, I think society went through this big Instagram and social media where everyone wants to have a certain look or and so, so forth. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, individualism and, and I work with a lot of um, colleagues in various parts of medicine who emphasize not looking like anyone else or performing procedures to, or to look like anyone else, but to look like yourself and the best version of yourself. Yeah. I mean, certainly all that stuff resonates with a lot of the ethos that we have at Mind Body Green and I personally have. So it, it sounds like we do share a lot of overlap, but I want to ask you about your textbook. You have quite literally written a textbook on dermatology. And I think that's pretty impressive. And I want to ask, what was that process like? One. And then two, what were some of the most fascinating things you that you covered whilst writing and researching it? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Alex. So for one, I don't think I'll ever be invited to do a, a visual book tour or a guided <laughs> guided talk on my book because... I've looked at some of the photos. So the name of the textbook is Clinical Dermatology Fitzpatrick Color Atlas, and, and it's the ninth edition, the Fitzpatrick Color Atlas and Synopsis of Clinical Dermatology. It's actually... So I'm the third author. There's three authors, Dr. Arturo Saavedra, Dr. Ellen Rowe, and I'm the third author. They are my colleagues when I trained at Massachusetts General Hospital. And this particular textbook really has been around since almost in the 60s. So that the first version was developed. And so this edition took about three years to complete. And I was very fortunate to be one of the co-authors. As I mentioned earlier, I love, I love teaching and I actually have a, an extensive clinical dermatology photo collection. And with this edition, we updated a lot of the images to include actually some novel diseases like coronavirus and variations and different medication related side effects. But I have a very large uh, photo collection of, of dermatologic disease. And so I was involved with all the new updates to photography and also a lot of new text. So that was a very long process. I try to hide the textbook because my kids uh, are totally grossed out by a lot of the photography, as you can imagine. But it is a process I, I love to do. And I think in about five to six years, we may do an update. Interestingly enough, this textbook is number one or two in a lot of uh, primary care family doctor offices because of wow. the high quality photographs. So I'm very proud of it. I, I'm glad to talk about it. I love discussing various interesting cases that we published in here. And I forgot the second part of your well, the second part was what were some of the more interesting things that you uncovered while writing it? Essentially, some of those interesting cases. Yes, there's multiple that I can think of. I will say one of the best that stands out we included in this textbook was a unusual presentation, a new, a new unusual case of scurvy. Wow. Many may remember scurvy. It's basically like from William Shakespeare times of vitamin C deficiency. And interestingly enough, this can vitamin C deficiency can still happen today, very rarely in very unique situations. But because of how rare it is, it's oftentimes not diagnosed in time. It's a very clear case of a, of a young woman who, due to her particular diet that she learned about on actually social media, was avoiding a lot of fruits. And after about eight months of not being able to walk on her, not uh, being able, because of pain in her ankles and swelling and bleeding into her joints, finally presented to the hospital. And she had all the unique hallmarks of 
um, scurvy, vitamin C deficiency. So that's what that was probably one of the most memorable cases. No kidding. That's fascinating that it all stemmed from what I am sure was essentially misinformation on social media. Exactly. There's a lot on social media. By the way, it's very difficult to follow a diet like this. So I was very impressed that she was able to actually uh, stick with become it. Con- stick with it. Consistency is very impressive. I did give her credit for that, but we discussed that that's not good. And she, within about three days of vitamin C replacement through the IV, she was a new person and we became pretty close friends actually after that. But yeah, so that was uh, an amazing case. Well, that is very fascinating to me. But I do want to move on to talking about aging. And, you know, at My Buddy Green, we we know and we believe that aging isn't just about wrinkles. In fact, a few of our past episodes, our more recent past episodes, we talked about how facial aging comes down to bone loss or changes in muscle composition and muscle balance and all of these things that we don't necessarily think about when it comes to aging. And I know that you, too, are a big advocate for talking about the more unsuspecting ways that our skin changes with time. So I want to dive into concerns. So why don't we just start off with this kind of a broad question? We can whittle it down from there. What are some of the lesser known changes to the skin that comes with aging? Great discussion. And of course, again, there's a lot that our generation and social media is great in terms of education, but sometimes education becomes concentrated around beauty and how to quote unquote reverse aging and so forth. But fundamentally, there are some scientific biological processes that uh, lead to both skin, muscle, joint, bone aging. So in terms of bone, right, most people have heard of the term osteoporosis. And in 2007, six, seven, there are some authors that started to use a new term called dermatoporosis, but basically the same concept, which is chronic cutaneous insufficiency or fragility, basically the skin going through the changes that we know bones go through and joints and so forth. And so what does this mean? So I started to use this term dermatoporosis a lot more often because, you know, in clinical practice, we see a dermatologist see an overwhelming majority of patients who are 60 and older. Why? Because skin cancer is much more common in that category. And of course, dermatologists, you know, they were the primary doctors who treat skin cancer and skin cancer is, again, much more common in those 60 plus category. So in that patient population, what is dermatoporosis? That's where we see it the most. About 40% of individuals 16 over will have some manifestation. And those manifestations are visual and then functional. So what are the visual changes of dermatoporosis? That includes things like actinic or senile purpura, which is the sort of the bruising, the, the violet purple bruise marks that you oftentimes see on the back of the hands and forearms. And the other big component of visual change of dermatoporosis is skin atrophy. And so skin atrophy, sometimes my patients will refer to as maybe crepey skin to some extent, but thin, much, much thinner skin. And then functionally, the skin dermatoporosis manifestation in skin leads to poor wound healing, easily traumatized skin, and hematomas, or what are called dissecting hematomas, which are very large bruises, not necessarily very large, but large bruises that are much more frequent. And when frequent bruising happens over and over again, that actually leads to the visual change of actinic purpura, which is as the bruise heals, it can leave pigmentation in the skin and then those sort of those areas become brownish, darker, rust colored. 
And so some people ask me how I became involved in this, this sort of discussion at all. And I've been interviewed on this topic many times. And it's been really because there was, if you look at the, what I just mentioned with dermatoporosis, and you look at the, our patients who ask for, my patients ask for, how, what do I do with the myactinic or senile purpura, the discoloration that sort of in the recurrent bruising that I have free, that, that's happening so often? Well, there was no really good treatment options, whether cosmetic or therapeutic in the market. And so I was fortunate to, to have a, a, a brilliant colleague while I was training at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And he and I ended up studying this in depth and, and trying to figure out a good solution for uh, dermatoporosis or, or skin fragility, skin atrophy, and skin bruising. So that's basically these lesser discussed components of aging. This is, again, not necessarily the beauty and the wrinkle components, but nevertheless, you know, the patients, this is front and center for them. The forearms, they get very embarrassed in the shins, the same thing. And so we've been working hard to, to try to come up with something for this condition. Yeah, this is fascinating. And I have a few follow-up questions. The first thing I want to touch on is this idea that it may not be the front and center of beauty, but I do think the thinning of the skin is this almost like intangible way that our skin changes and the way our face changes that people don't exactly know how to put a finger on, but they can see it happening. Like wrinkles are so obvious to point out. Dark spots are obvious to point out. Right. But thinning of the skin is not necessarily something that's immediately obvious. But you do see it happening with time and you can see the change of skin and or you can see the difference in young, plump, thick skin versus older, thinner skin. So I do feel like this is ripe for the beauty industry to tackle and discuss. But anyway, my first follow up question is we talk about how this happens with aging, but what exactly is happening within the skin that is causing this thinning? What's happening with the dermal layers? Yes, yes, great question. And this gets back to a combination of basic science and translational medicine. I don't work in a basic science lab where I don't write research grants for this, but I do work closely with the, those individuals that do and read a lot of the publications that have come out, uh, out on this topic. And there has been a lot of interest in, in understanding various parts of aging, of course, aging skin, I should say. And for example, getting back to atrophy or what's happening in the question is what is happening in the dermis. And what I say, what I, the terminology I use is alteration in skin viscoelasticity. So this is a mouthful and I'll say it again, skin viscoelasticity. So basically the, the ability, the, so the scaffolding in the dermis, right? So what's keeping, maintaining that plumpness, that thickness, and it's every, everything, including collagen, glycoaminoglycans, hyaluronic acid, filagrin. So there's so many inner, uh, so many different proteins that are interacting. But fundamentally, what we know is happening is that ultraviolet radiation over time, we understand that, and that has multiple effects, both on collagen, poor collagen development, synthesis is slows significantly. There are many more oxidation, oxidative free radicals, and our immune system plays another key role, signaling in our immune system. As we age, we know our immune system slows and becomes much less effective. And that also plays a key role in inability of a lot of wound healing and repair. And so what the, a lot of researchers looked at 
and you'll see this in a lot of products already, right? Antioxidants or products that try to increase the dermal thickness. Retinoids we know are a fantastic and fantastic development in skin regeneration of, of skin viscoelasticity. And then things more recently like hyaluronic acid, and that has been fantastic as well. And within all of the things I just mentioned, I'm touching on just the tip of the iceberg, but there are great, not so great, and okay versions of all of these different cream-based yeah. or oral-based therapies. Hopefully part of that answer or question I was able to answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also wanted to ask a little bit more specifically about the bruising, because yeah. I do know this is a big problem. And even I would consider myself somebody who bruises easily. So I'm also a little bit interested in just like a discussion about bruising in general. So from your answer, I kind of have a an inclination of why this is happening. Like the dermis is thinning. I, I would assume blood vessels are a little bit more uh, fragile with age. Is that is that a correct assessment of why bruising is more apparent? With age? Right. So a couple of things. Absolutely. Yeah. So we know why bruising, everyone has had a bruise in their life. And so yeah. we, this is a normal response to some sort of trauma, whether it was an accidental bump, scrape, nick. And actually in some, in many cosmetic procedures, fillers, laser treatments, you'll see bruising that, that happens, right? And so what happens is that uh, blood cells spill out of the tiny capillaries, the tiny vessels, into the space around the capillaries and the vessels. Now, as we age in the skin, it's not just aging in and of itself, but areas of your body that have chronic ultraviolet radiation, uh, such as the forearms, those areas, the scaffolding or the material around the capillaries becomes much, much, much weaker, much thinner, and much, and so you, so a much lower amount of trauma is required to, to cause bruising. So that sort of is the reason why time on this planet and exposure to ultraviolet radiation will cause much our skin to bruise more easily. Now, combine that with individuals who are over 60 who are on certain medications like aspirin or other blood thinners, and then, you know, Plavix, Serelto, if you've had uh, a blood clot, you go on a blood thinner. So yeah. in that population, of course, now it, when the bruising happens, it's much, will take much longer time to heal. And then it sort of uh, continues, the cycle continues over and over again. Okay. So with bruising, is there anything that you can do topically to help its appearance? Because like I said, I am somebody who bruises quite easily. I can imagine as I get older that perhaps will get worse. So this is something that I am personally interested in. Essentially, what solutions are there? Yes, Alex, that is not uncommon. And I've heard from patients similar similar concerns. And I will say that there are several answers. One is before procedures. So for example, I have patients who have laser procedures done. And before laser procedures, in some cases, they these individuals take many supplements. So think about the supplements first of all. So some supplements, including fish oil or ginkgo biloba, actually can thin your blood. And, and uh, many people didn't don't realize that. So anything that will decrease your coagulation or clotting 
also known as a blood thinners, will make bruising more common and, and last longer. So like I said, think about the supplements, fish oil being uh, is a common one, ginkgo, biloba, another one. And even ibuprofen, if individuals who take mm. ibuprofen often will be more likely to bruise and, and bruising last longer. Of course, don't stop things unless you discuss with your physician first, but that's step one is thinking about what you're taking orally, including supplements. But in terms of topical creams and other therapeutics, and like I said, there's a couple of scenarios. One is when you have a procedure done and afterwards, whether it's filler or laser, or for the individuals that I see more often, which is the 60 and over or individuals who happen to, to bruise often. So in those situations, there are a couple of proven creams. And when I say proven, I started my work in, in this field and in medicine in general, always looking at evidence and evidence guided suggestions. So Arnica Montana is a, an ingredient that has been around for quite a while and has been studied actually in many scenarios where bruising was the ultimate concern. So Arnica has been studied in situations where lasers were done, fillers were done, and also in actinic or age-related purpura or bruising. And so that is an ingredient that we know uh, can help bruising for sure. The question is the type of Arnica Montana in the cream you're using ideal for absorption and concentration great enough for efficacy. So that all depends on the company that created it, sourced it, and included it into the formula. So that's a critical ingredient. Vitamin K, another critical ingredient also studied in combination with Arnica can work really well to decrease the time of bruise resolution. And so those are the, the two critical ingredients for bruising. Now, there, when you combine vitamin K and Arnica with other, I would call them antioxidants like vitamin C, then that they can work actually in conjunction even a little bit better. And then when looking at creams for sort of prevention of bruising, you want to Again, go back to the fundamentals of why bruising is happening, right? So we want to improve the strength of our collagen and thickness of our skin. So hyaluronic acid is important. Yeah, but th that's where I usually start with the most, the biggest bang for your buck, as some would say, would be with uh, ingredients such as arnica and vitamin K. Okay, very helpful. I... Like I said, I feel like I deal with it on my body now and I'm only in my 30s. So certainly something I want to be thinking about. To move on the discussion, I, I also know that you do work with KP as well. And this is another skin condition that I have. I feel like we're talking about everything that I deal with in today's episode. But I have KP. I know a lot of people at My Body Green deal with KP. It's whenever we write stories about it, the traffic does fairly well. And a lot of our staffers deal with it. So I feel like I'm always fielding questions about the skin condition. So I, I want to ask you a, a few questions about it. But before we do, for anybody who doesn't know what KP is, can you just give us a little bit of an overview? Of course, of course. I'll give an overview about KP. Offline, I'll make sure I'll get all of the insurance credentials so we can build this visit. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but these are very common conditions, right? So bruising is, is very common for in various settings. And I just to finish off that conversation for those interested in more sort of literature and discussion and FAQs about bruising at different types and different treatment options. There's always, I tend to write on our website at skintensive.com a little bit more about that. So that's for anyone who wants to read and learn and educate themselves more. 
or take you can also put that in the show notes too. So that way it's nice and easy for people to find more info there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, there's many different questions that we get and I try to answer as many as we can. In terms of keratosis pilaris, yeah. So again, this is one of these conditions when that I had growing up in my teens and about 40 to 50. Well, let me back up and actually just sort of describe keratosis pilaris. It's a common skin disorder. It's characterized by this unfortunate nickname of quote unquote chicken skin. (laughs) Most often seen in children and adolescents, about 50 to 80% of adolescents will have it. And it's those rough sort of tiny little bumps that can be quite red, primarily on like the triceps, the back of the arms, upper arms, can be on the buttocks, it can be on the abdomen sometimes. And what I would say is the most frustrating is a variant that happens on the cheeks where Mm -hmm. the cheeks are quite red. And oftentimes I'll see these, like I said, adolescents, teenage years, I'll see these individuals because they've been treated or diagnosed with rosacea or something else or acne. But in reality, it's keratosis pilaris and they've gone through all these treatment options uh, and it's KP, keratosis pilaris on their cheeks. Um, And it's very frustrating. Uh, And uh, it not only frustrating, but it can be cause a lot of at that age group, you know, embarrassing. And yeah. so whether it's the arms or the face, in any case, it's embarrassing. We a lot of doctors used to think that this condition improves with age and about 15 to 20, about a quarter will improve drastically. But the majority of individuals who have keratosis pilaris in teen years will most likely have some of KP most of their life. And so that's the interest in this condition really was really stemmed from my my history, my dealing with KP and ineffectively dealing with it early on in life and sort of, again, trying to find figuring out, trying to figure out a solution. Ultimately, when I had kids, they also unfortunately developed KP, but luckily not as bad as, as I have. You mentioned trying to treat it and doing so ineffectively in your younger years. And that brings me to my first follow-up, which is what are the mistakes that you see people make when they are trying to treat their KP? Because I've seen advice that ranges from exfoliation to using a very specific type of herb to cutting out gluten in your diet. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the misunderstandings and mistakes that you see people make when dealing with it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's such a common condition. Of course, you're, you'll see a lot of discussion, a lot of writing, publications and uh, outlets discussing different approaches. I think for a, quite a long time in the medical community, the way that treatment was, we recommended treatment, I should say, the we, the dermatology community recommended treatment was to tackle what we see. What we see are rough, sort of hyperkeratotic, we use that term, or spiny bumps on the skin. And so our treatment algorithm, our suggestions really revolved around creams or products out there that can exfoliate to some extent. Right. And so these are alpha hydroxy acids, such as lactic acid, salicylic acid, and urea. These have been pretty a standard recommendation for many years. Now, the problem with this approach, and as a as a patient who tried a lot of these approaches, is a, a fundamental problem that most will see is one, these ingredients can be quite uncomfortable. They can sting, they can burn. 
That's for one. And so it's very difficult to maintain a long treatment plan because keratosis yeah. pilaris doesn't develop in months or weeks or days, right? Keratosis pilaris is, is with us. It's a genetically predisposed condition like eczema or psoriasis. So it's going to take a long time to improve it. And I always remind everyone of my patients is that this will take months, 12 months, 14 months, years before you yeah. start to see slow and, and gradual improvement. And so expectations are really important. So there is no cure. And what our goal is to slowly uh, and gently improve uh, the appearance. So avoiding irritants is very important. Avoiding harsh surfactants, irritants like SLS or sodium lauryl sulfate, avoiding dyes, avoiding fragrances, avoid, avoiding irritants. So actually treatment of this condition is very similar in many ways to eczema or atopic dermatitis. So we start there is what to avoid and uh, avoiding a lot of those harsh chemicals. And two, then we start looking at really asking what fundamentally is leading to this condition. And so the bumps that we see are the manifestation. So it's like sort of the end result, right? But the underlying problem actually, and this was a nice study that was done about uh, 10 years ago that actually took samples of people who have KP and they took samples like biopsies, they cut the skin, they looked at it under the microscope and compared the skin that had keratosis pilaris and then they would biopsy a different part of that individual that did not have keratosis pilaris. And they saw a big difference. And that difference was their oil gland. So oil gland composition. And so there are very few oil glands in areas that had keratosis pilaris. And so what does that mean? Well, if our oil glands, are, they're called sebaceous glands, if they're not able to produce adequate and proper fatty acids, then our skin cannot mature properly. So you get the, this buildup, this sort of bumpy buildup. And so then think so so that's kind of where I came in and end, ended up trying to create a formula that addresses that underlying issue of oil gland dysfunction, sebaceous gland dysfunction. And so using ingredients that have jojoba oil and coconut oil as moisturizers, that's where we need to spend more time. Yeah. I mean, this is honestly a fascinating approach to it, just because I do feel like even today you still hear people's first reaction to KP is, oh, I'm going to exfoliate it away. When mm -hmm. in fact, you're saying, and the research seems to point to that it needs to be more about barrier protection, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So exfoliation will certainly help that roughness component. The problem with, and, 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 and I tell patients, do a little bit of exfoliation. Maybe once yeah. a week, you can use salicylic acid. There are many brands out there that have a low percentage salicylic acid. And that's good. That will get rid of that roughness. But the to prevent further bumps from developing and further roughness from develop from developing, we have to sort of really attack that oil gland development, sebaceous gland, and, and replenish our skin, the barrier, with some of the critical fatty acids that are missing. And, and, and diet plays a role. Some supplements have been shown to help. So these are all uh, important things. So diet that is high in omega-3 and omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, that is a very good diet, high in those omega-3s, omega-6s, because we know that individuals who start Accutane or vitamin A, we see mm -hmm. that they, have, they tend to have more KP, that tends to have more KP because Accutane, that's great for acne, it cures acne in many ways by shrinking oil glands, shrinking sebaceous glands, and, and KP typically flares. So, so, and with my patients, I try to have a holistic approach. I talk about diet, I talk about habits, 
supplements, and of course, creams. On the holistic part, I have read or I've seen people talk about, like on social media, about gluten's role in this. And I have to ask you, is that true? Is there any connection between eating gluten in your diet and KP? Good question. So the question about gluten and and various skin diseases has been really interesting because we know that individuals who have a real and testable gluten sensitivity, gluten allergy, right? Those individuals have a, a condition called celiac disease, right? And, and when celiac individuals with celiacs have, have a rash, for example, they can, some individuals with gluten disease can have a condition called dermatitis herpetiformis. And, and that's a real skin condition in individuals with sensitivity to certain type of sensitivity to gluten. That That is a very specific rash. Now, that's not what we're talking about here, but there are some people who have gluten sensitivity and who may not know that they have gluten sensitivity and who don't, who are not treating their gluten sensitivity. And, and so for those individuals, treating or addressing the gluten sensitivity will improve their skin. And actually in individuals who have, for example, psoriasis, in some people who have psoriasis, and this has been found who also have gluten sensitivity, gluten allergy, by treating gluten allergy, you have an improvement in their psoriasis. So that's sort of my answer really comes from studies done in eczema, atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, where improving the avoiding gluten in individuals who have a gluten allergy or gluten sensitivity improves their skin condition. So it, it's not for everyone that changing your gluten diet will improve KP, but in individuals who really do have a gluten problem, a gluten sensitivity allergy, avoiding gluten does help. Okay. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because we know through the gut-skin connection that if your gut is irritated, it can have repercussions on your skin if you are tend to have those condi- conditions already or like a genetic predisposition to them. So yeah, no, that mm-hmm. checks out. Absolutely. Okay. So listen, the last thing I want to chat with you about is how you take care of yourself. Why don't we start with your skincare routine? I feel like that's an easy place to start. Of course. Yeah. I, I keep things, you know, and I recommend this to, to a lot of patients who just want a, a routine that they can stick to. And it starts with the fundamentals, right? So that's um, a sunscreen in the morning after brushing your teeth. I usually keep it right next to the toothpaste, creating a habit so you don't forget. the. So the sunscreen is usually paired in the morning with a very gentle moisturizer. At night, I usually use a retinol-based product, usually a prescription tretinoin. Sometimes I use a little higher strength tazeratine once or twice a week. And gentle cleanser, moisturizing gentle cleanser. So that's sort of my nighttime routine. By the way, all the retinols, when I put retinols on, I do combine it with a, a moisturizer. Usually I use one of the products in the skin intensive brand that has sea buckthorn in it for anti-inflammatory benefits, but that's it. So a moisturizer, a retinol, and in the morning, uh, sunscreen. Simple enough. I like it. All the classics. And then we also talk about how people take care of themselves as a whole. And I'm curious, what are some of your health and wellness must-haves. Is there any part of your routine that you simply must stick to? Yes, yes. Sometimes it's hard to realize what are those uh, important things for your body until you, you you don't get enough of it. And so I've gone through stretches where I wasn't able to stick to a good exercise routine and you realize that. There's two things that I think are the most important, seven to eight hours of sleep every night as many as much as possible and exercise 30 to 40 minutes 
at least four to five times a week. So for me, that's because I do have three kids. I try what I have a treadmill at home and a small home gym. And I try to set reminders for how much um, sleep I get. And I will add that I, I set limits to social media. So on my phone and so to set an example for kids, right, is to minimize social media on my, I only have one iPhone. So that's, that's the other important thing to, for sort of the mind component of my health. No, I, I very much respect that. I think it's something that I really want to rededicate myself to in 2024 is, you know, really limiting the social media intake just because it, it does affect you. It really does. Well, listen, I learned so much. I'm particularly fascinated about our discussion up top in terms of dermal thinning and bruising. But I also know that KP is something that uh, a lot of our listeners and a lot of the Mind Buddy Green community deals with. So I know that they'll be thrilled that we got to chat about that today as well. So overall, just really fascinating episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Alex, thank you so much. If anyone is ever interested, mylastname.com, mikhailov.com, they can contact me through that way as well. And of course, if anyone's interested in just having a good read before they go to bed, I would avoid my textbook. But if they're interested in learning dermatology, I would certainly get one. Okay. I actually want to get one for myself. Now, I will be checking out that Amazon link that I found earlier when I was doing my research on you and I'll be ordering myself one. So thank you. Do it with caution. But yes, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. I'm glad to, to talk anytime. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. For more beauty content from the team at Mind Buddy Green, you can always read along with our content at mindbuddygreen.com, follow us on social media, and of course, tune into next week's episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you ever want to reach out with questions or insights or thoughts, you can find me on Instagram at Alex underscore Blair underscore. Thanks so much for your time.